your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're looking at the 11th Psalm, the third verse, and it will be coupled with the passage which was read earlier from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Psalm 11 verse 3 reads this way from the New American Standard Bible. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We hear a lot about making America great again, and today we're going to see how that's possible, what role you and I can play in that. Theodore Dostoevsky, the well-known, well-read Russian novelist, said this over a hundred years ago, speaking about Europe primarily, but in some ways the United States of America. It applies to us today. The West has lost Christ Therefore, it is dying. That is the reason. What we want to understand is some things about what has been in the past and what is happening now. We know the Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana said those who repeat the, forget the past are condemned to repeat it. First of all, we're going to look at the fact that God was great in the founding of America. Christopher Columbus, in a book which has not been translated into English, it's called the Book of Prophecies. It's in Spanish. Listen to what he had to say about his venture into the realm of discovery, which led to the discovery of this nation. It was the Lord who put into my mind the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. He thought he was going to India, of course. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures. He read the book of Isaiah and was led in his own heart to believe that God was leading him to go to what he called the coastlands. That's referred to by Isaiah in the prophecy. His name, Christopher, means Christ-bearer, and he believed God was sending him on a mission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people who had never heard the gospel. Can you believe it? You don't read that in many history books, but this was from his own pen. He said, I didn't use intelligence, mathematics, or maps. I just sought to follow the Lord and seek His help in discovery. And that he did. 1607, Jamestown was established, the Virginia colony. Prior to that, there had been an attempt led by Sir Walter Raleigh. He had been given a charter, a commission from the monarch of England to go. He established an island. It was called Roanoke Island. That was the name which he gave to the island. It was a total disaster. He left many people behind to return to England in order that he could report to the king what he had experienced there. When a group went back to that same island, there was no trace found of any of those who had been left behind. To this day, it remains a mystery as to what happened to them. Sir Francis Bacon was writing about this after the fact, and it's thought by historians, at least some, one namely Paul Johnson is a good representative of that group which believes this. The reason the first attempt at founding 
a colony which came to be known as Virginia was because of the leadership. Sir Walter Raleigh was a deist, and therefore he was called an atheist, a deist. I should define that for you that may not know what that means. It's a person who believes that there is a God who created the universe. But once having created that being, took his hand off in terms of governing the affairs and the circumstances of man. There's no such thing as providence or sovereignty of God in the affairs of man as far as deists are concerned. They do not believe that God speaks to man in what might be called special revelation in the person of Jesus or the Word of God. There is no communication. And so this man was a deist. Those who thought of him, thought him as an atheist, because in that day the word deist had yet to come into being. But he did not believe in a providential, personal God. Just a few years later, in 1611, James Gates was given the responsibility to go to that region, to Jamestown, and bring some order to it. He wrote a little treatise. It was called Laws, Divine, Moral, and Martial. And what it was designed to do was set the foundation for Jamestown. And that it did. Sabbath was to be observed. Immodest dress was not allowed. Idolists, believe it or not, was severely punished. If you didn't work, you didn't eat, but you got some punishment too. That's pretty drastic, we might think today. In 1620, a group of pilgrims set forth from the Netherlands. They had been, in a sense, exiled there because of their beliefs. These people were separatists. You know what a separatist is? Perhaps from your history you studied when you were in school, you learned it. Separatists were people who broke away from the Church of England because they no longer could deal with the interference of the Church of England in their practice of their faith. And the Church of England was dictating the terms that these people were to worship God in. These people were believers in Jesus. They weren't some kind of cult. That's the way they were looked at by the establishment. So they fled for asylum in the Netherlands. Then in 1620, they made their way, stopping off in Great Britain and then coming on over. In November of that year, a great storm took hold of them. They had all kinds of storms, external and internal. There was a lot of difference in the 101 who had come to the New World. Of those 101, 36 were Puritans. They were people who really believed that God spoke to people, the contrast with them, and Deist is the strongest possible contrast. And they sought to build their lives based on the Word of God because they had developed a worldview that was scriptural in nature. When they were still some leagues off the coast of what we now know as Massachusetts, they were aiming for Virginia. They were blown off course, ended up at what we now know as Plymouth Rock. Some of you have been there. They came together, the heads of both groups. One-third of those people were Puritans. The other two-thirds were not. They were at least nominal worshipers of God. They came together, and they put together what we now know as the Mayflower Compact. It was really a covenant. It was a contract that set the stage for American government. And it was rooted primarily in the principles of God's Word. 
there was some influence from social contract philosophy, which had budded in that century and grew and grew. Thomas Hobbes was one of the proponents of it. John Locke, whose writings had influence upon some of our founding fathers too. But nevertheless, it was a covenant. And this is the way they looked at it. It was not a contract between a servant and a master, nor between a subject and a king. Rather, it was a contract among people who saw themselves as equals. And it was a contract that was also appealing to the co-signature of God. It was a covenant between them as individuals, a contract between them and God as well. And they were the ones who formed that colony in Massachusetts. Not too long after that, in 1630, John Winthrop, himself a Puritan, himself a graduate of Cambridge University, world-class university then and still to this day, he was a lawyer, practiced law in his home country of England before leading, count them, 1,000 immigrants. It was a whole fleet of ships. And they came across the Atlantic. He said before he left, the reason that the colonies have failed largely to this point, planted by Great Britain, is because they were more secular than religious. And he had in his heart the desire to go forward in this matter, to try to bring the kingdom to bear, kingdom of God to bear in the new world. He was committed to that. You're probably familiar with the line or two from a speech which he wrote and then spoke to the people whom he led before they left to make their voyage across the Atlantic. He said, We are a city on a hill. The eyes of all people will be upon us. Talking about an allusion, I believe, to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, a light, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He was talking about his view of who they were. Our founding father, George Washington, many people believe he was a deist. That information, and I was taught that, frankly, he and Franklin and Jefferson, it's easily argued that Jefferson was a deist from his writings. Franklin wasn't much of anything, really. He was a brilliant man and had wisdom, too. But he was not really much of a churchman whatsoever. But it's been said that George Washington, too, was a deist. This is sort of new in American history. It was not until 1963 that a scholar, Paul Bowler Jr., wrote a biography about him. This man had such weight in the academic community, especially in the area of history, American history particularly, and he wrote a biography on President Washington, and he said he was a deist, and he gave his reasons for it. Well, let me just make mention for you what constitutes a deist. I've said something about what deism is, but also a deist 
does not, I'm going to get down a little more closely and look at what I've said. A deist does not believe that God communicates with individual people today in special revelation, either in a person like Jesus or in the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. That's what a deist was. That's the way they were viewed in that day. Well, was that true of George Washington? Because of the influence of this man, many people, many people have bought that, what I would say, lie. But before him, in 1926, another so-called scholar, Rupert Hughes, wrote a biography on President Washington. And he said, there is no direct allusion to Christ, and the word Christ has been found in none of Washington's almost countless autographs. That means his writings. I beg to differ with him, not because I'm some great researcher of history, but because I have done my own research. I haven't researched the primary sources. A secondary source has yielded this piece of information. When President Washington was addressing the Delaware nation, who were wishing to know what they could do to adopt some of the characteristics of the colonists, this is what he said to him. Listen carefully. You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. Does that sound like a deist to you? Based on the definition that I have suggested, and I believe it's a correct definition. It's one, by the way, which was published in 1828 by Noah Webster. You know the Webster Dictionary. He was a one who started that whole thing going in 1828, really a little earlier than that. It was a later edition of his initial edition. But nevertheless, George Washington was a person who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot read his work. It's full of references. Some of the objections to to the fact that he was not a true Christian have been that he used terms like providence as referring to God's God, rather. And that was common in the day of the preaching of that day. It was very common. And it's a way of speaking of God. Of course it is. His farewell address gives even clearer insight into the commitment of George Washington to the biblical worldview. There are three main ideas which he proposed. And to this day, presidents, before they take office, invariably read and study And they learn even to now. And you can see the wisdom that was God-given to our first president when it came to his understanding of the future of America. When he was leaving office after two terms in office, he was asked, would you become king? They wanted to make him king. He would have become king. We would be not a democracy today, not a representative kind of government today. We would be kingdom today, probably, were it not for the wisdom he had. And he said, this is not what is to be true. But listen, here are the three things he talked about. First of all, he said, do nothing to foster a party spirit. What he was saying was the union of this nation is more important than any political party. That's what he was saying. And he knew that it would rip apart the fabric 
of a nation. Now, we have political parties, two major ones, and they're polar opposites for sure. But he warned against that. Here's the second thing which he warned against. He warned against making alliances that would make us dependent with, upon other nations. He said that we are to be friendly to other nations. We are to be helpful to other nations. But we are to be independent of other nations. That's wise diplomacy as well. Not isolationists, but careful in our associations. And then here is the one that really I want to mention here, the third primary emphasis. In the light of the dreadful events which had occurred in the French Revolution. Do you know anything about the French Revolution? Unbelievable compared to ours. If there had not been a great awakening, spiritually speaking, in Great Britain, Great Britain would have become just like France. In light of those events, he says he wished to dispel for good any notion that America was a secular state. It was a government of laws, but it was also a government of morals. Of all the dispositions and habits, he wrote, which led to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. This was our first president. I repeat, God was great in the founding of the United States of America. Let's go to another very important statement that needs some explanation as we explore an answer. What has happened in America? Well, here's what has happened. God has been made small in America. Now listen carefully. American Christianity. The problem in the culture is our problem. It's not the culture's problem because we have failed as the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. We're going to see in detail how that can be verified. George Barna and his research group, for the last 35 years, they have been collecting data to try to analyze the state of the church using the same kind of scientific approach that any statistician from a secular perspective would use to gather information in polling. We know no poll is perfect, but this is what his team has learned in the last 35 years. There's a consistency in what I'm about to say in terms of what has happened in American religious life. 2015, the most recent data which comes from the Barna Group, 2015, 64% of American adults had no affiliation and wanted none with any local church. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. I said it last week. I'm saying it again today. That going to church, being a member of a church, doesn't make you a Christian. It just means you go to a place of worship. So we can't equate the two for sure. That's not to say of those 64%, there could be true believers. I don't know that. I'm not the judge of that. So that means there are 36% of other people who have some sort of tie to Christianity. 30% of whom say we are born again. Only 6% of those 36% who do connect themselves to the church are what Barna and his group call evangelical 
Christians. This is a departure from what theologians call evangelical theology, and hence devotees to that theology are evangelical Christians. It's, there's a difference. So let, let's talk about that just a moment. From Barna's perspective, this 6% are people who read the Bible regularly, at other times besides when they come to church or go to a Bible study, they read the Bible privately regularly. And I meant to mention this earlier. One of the things which was characteristic of the earliest colonists in New England was that there would be one book, if there were no other book, in every home where people could read. And it was the Word of God. It was the Bible. And we have records that would indicate that every member who could read would read the Bible privately every day, like we call a quiet time. But then also they would read it together. Now, if you only had one book and you like to read, that would make a difference, wouldn't it? We've got too many options today. I'm not for book burning at all. I've got way too many books. I probably need to burn some of mine just because I've got too many. I'm a collector of books. I need to read more books. But the one book that was primary then and would be today also would be the Bible, God's Word. Evangelicals, that small sliver of Christianity and American adults, 6%, they're people who read the Bible. They believe the Bible. They are people who have read the whole Bible. There are people who attend a place of worship regularly. There are people who live out their faith. There are people who want to share their faith with other people. It's a person who is what we would call a committed Christian, actually. That's what an evangelical believer is, according to this surveying. And we have a bunch of other people, though. 30% of people, according to Barna's research, who claim to be born again, but he says when you put their practice up side by side with others who don't know the Lord, are not in, interested in spiritual things, per se, there's no difference in their lifestyle. Now, there is something wrong with that picture. We know that Christians are still subject to sin. Well, we do know also, though, that, that a person who really knows Jesus, in whom Jesus dwells by the Holy Spirit of God, is a person, by virtue of the presence of Jesus in his or her life, is a person who is sensitive to sin when he or she does sin. Remember what David said? This is very in, in, insightful for us. He said in one of his psalms, he said, My sin troubles me. That's true of anybody who really has the Holy Spirit living in him or her. Your sin will bother you. The Holy Spirit won't settle for it. He will convince you and convict you of your sin. And consequently, He serves, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit of God serves as the governor of our lives. He helps us to see when we are in a ditch of sin. And He helps us get back on the pathway and repent of our sin and follow and go forward. There are illustrations I could use. Some of you watched The Bachelorette. I have not watched it lately. I've repented of that. But but I've read just recently that the young lady who is the bachelorette right now 
confesses to be a Christian, but she also has been involved in promiscuous behavior while searching for a husband from all those possible husbands among the bachelors. And she's kind of boasting about it, actually. I'm not going to go into the lurid details of that, but she is. She's boasting about it. And she says, hey, I'm forgiven. I can be used by God as an example of how he forgives people and they learn from their mistakes. Well, yeah, she could be. But we need to understand that the Bible and, and some of her supporters, the previous lady, I think her name was Caitlin Bristow, the previous bachelorette, or a previous bachelorette, who doesn't claim to know Christ, said that, hey, give her a break. It's her choice what she does. Well, may I say to you today, as I understand what the Scriptures teach, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I do. Now, we all do things that aren't in keeping with what the Lord would have us to do. However, we don't do it habitually and we're not proud of it. We are broken by it. And we come before the Lord and ask His forgiveness. And get right with the Lord once we're shown by the Holy Spirit that that's what's going on with us. Last night, we had a beautiful experience here worshiping the Lord. And a young lady named Priscilla, who comes from a non-religious home, born bred right here in El Paso. Her mother, Vic Lourdes, her father, Victor, her two younger sisters, Melissa and Nicole, were here, second row. And she gave her testimony. It was a gorgeous testimony. She had never considered the Lord in her life. She'd been curious about what takes place in a building like this. She told Dan that. Dan spent some time working with her. But she said the thing that piqued her curiosity was when she went to work, she met a young lady from our church, another Hannah, the gal who's the bachelorette's named Hannah. This is our Hannah. (laughs) And she said, when I met her, there was something about her immediately. I noticed she was so different. And I wanted to know what that something was. I wanted to have what she had. And Hannah Nicholson, one of our dear sisters in Christ in our church, was that woman. She let her light shine before Priscilla in such a way that Priscilla saw her good works and glorified her Father in heaven. Priscilla was born again through the testimony and the witness of her and the help of Pastor Dan as he met with her and answered her questions about the faith. Remember, she had no foundation at all. God used God's people to draw her to Christ. Hannah Nicholson primarily. And there are many possible Hannahs in this room. Every one of us could be such a person. But in order for that to happen, we must balance our lives and put them in the perspective that God would have. What has happened in American Christianity? We have diminished God. We don't know who God is. We don't read our Bibles enough to understand who He is. J.B. Phillips years ago wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. He describes ways that we have diminished God. We see God as a heavenly bellhop, someone who is here for us, 
Look, that is a misunderstanding of who God is and who we are. The greatest name that a person on earth can have is servant of the living God. The greatest David called himself a servant of God. Moses is described as a servant of God. Paul called himself a slave. He didn't just use the word servant. He called himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. He was not talking about serving us primarily, although we are the beneficiaries of that great act of redemption when He gave His life a ransom for many. We are part of that many if we are children of God. He was serving His Father. He did what the Father gave Him to do. He was equal and was forever equal before time and will be forever. But in the economy of the Trinity, this was His responsibility. And He divested Himself of divine prerogative. He laid down His right to do whatever He wanted to do without reference to what the Father had for Him to do. He submitted to the Father. He was the Father's servant. The greatest position you and I can have is a servant of God. What happened? The devil chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. Enlightenment, the age of reason, the 18th century, the devil was dismissed. Nihilism in the 19th century. Remember Nietzsche said, God is dead. And who was influenced most by Friedrich Nietzsche, the nihilist, Adolf Hitler. He was an exponent of that kind of philosophy. The 20th century man began to be diminished and dismissed. Dostoevsky, I've already mentioned him, to begin today, he said in another of his writings, if there were no God, everything would be permissible. That's not new, by the way. Just as the devil has, throughout his existence, taken pot shots at the Word of God, the truth of God, so he also has been at work in the hearts of men. The last verse of the book of Judges says this, There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. This is what has happened. It's infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. We are influenced by it. We're barraged by it. We live in a world. Remember, the whole world system lies under the control of the evil one. And we just continually are being bombarded by it. And it's watered our thinking down. It's complicated our lives because we're not men and women of the Word of God. We don't put ourselves in a position to develop a worldview this biblical look. You and I can have a biblical worldview and still not submit ourselves to the Lord. We have to have a biblical lifestyle which grows from the biblical worldview. Now let's look at the last part of this talk today. America will be made great again when God's great again in the hearts of His people. It happens with me and it starts with us in our hearts. Is God great in our hearts? 
Is He just part of our lives? Or is He the dominant figure in our lives? Is He our King and we His subjects? Are we here for His bidding? Or is He there for us? Now, He's there for us. He's our Father. But we need to get the proper priority. So let's turn and look at Second Chronicles 7 again. Three ideas emerge from this passage of Scripture as far as steps that are necessary for God to be made great again in our hearts. The Bible says in Psalm 118, It is better to take refuge in God than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in God than to trust in princes, the finest leader that we could ever have. We could say Abraham Lincoln was our finest leader. George Washington was our finest leader. You name whom you think has been our finest leader. Look, we are to trust in the living God. It's very important for our leadership. Verse 13 says, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, this land of Israel was a land that was an agrarian society, depending on virtually on everything that would be considered farming, agriculture for its existence. And it was about economics. God will put the pinch on you and me economically sometimes to get our attention. The next thing he says, or if I send pestilence among my people, that's sickness. Do you know God disciplines his people sometimes through sickness? That's not very pleasant flies in the face of a lot of popular theology which says God wants everybody to be fully healthy and fully wealthy. But the reality is, read the Bible. Read the whole Bible. Don't pick and choose what you want. But the good news for us is we say, why would God do that to us? Why would He punish us, His children? Well, God doesn't punish us. And I'm not splitting hairs here. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. Let me ask you, if you have children, would it be unloving if you never disciplined your children? Absolutely. Jesus Himself says, those whom I love, I discipline. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if I love you... I discipline you. Why? It's educative in nature. It's going to be used by God to form Christ more fully in us. We're going to be more like Him. We're going to be holy, if you will. And the Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Yes, you do. You wouldn't be here today spending this time here if you had no curiosity at all about that. And the way we see God is when God... When necessary, we're not constantly under His discipline, but it's an act of love on His part. Read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and following. You'll see that to be the case. So discipline of God's people by God Himself is the first step. We don't have anything to do that direct, with that directly. He has to initiate that, and He has to set the guidelines for that. We have no control over that. The second thing we see as a step in this passage of Scripture, is determination of God's people to humble themselves in repenting of their sin. This is our responsibility. Look at verse 14. My people, let me pause just a moment. There's only one nation that could claim to be God's nation. That is Israel. Now, we know that 
our nation had the kind of foundation it had, and thank God that he led the people that I've mentioned and many, many more, but it was never a fully Christian nation. Never. If you study the history carefully, even on the Mayflower, two-thirds of the people probably weren't believers. The one-third made a difference. Look, 6% of us, if only 6% of us are true, submitted believers to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are salt and light. God has used us and will continue to use us. We are people who are willing to lay down our lives for the kingdom of God. And that would mean we are willing to suffer in order to bring that which God would have to bring to bear in this country. In order for that to happen, the Scripture says, my people. And I do know what the Bible says about we who know Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven first and foremost. And thank God that most of us have had the privilege of being in this country as citizens. Thank God for all the people in this room, who have been here this weekend, who have put their lives in harm's way to preserve. My father served in World War II in Europe. My great-great-grandfather served in the Union Army. He was a prisoner at Andersonville. Do you know Andersonville? It was one of the worst prisons ever. His mother, my great-great-grandmother, pushed on my great-great-grandfather so hard to get her boys out of Mississippi where they lived and moved to a county, one county in West Tennessee, which was a Republican county because she did not want her sons to serve in the Confederate Army. And that great-great-grandfather and his brother, in that prison camp, they were starving of thirst. And on their knees, they got around together, those believers there, and they begged God, God, would you please give us water? And this is an apocryphal story. It may not have happened. There's no way to be sure of it, but a spring broke forth from the ground. I have that history. I love America. But my primary citizenship, and yours is too if you're a Christian, read the Bible, is in the kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what we need to bear in mind, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says this. It says that we are a people for God's own possession. It's not talking about Jewish people. It's not talking about descendants of Abraham. It's talking about us who are non-Jews. And we who are His people are to humble ourselves and we pray This is not like, now lay me down to sleep. God is good. God is great. Let us thank Him for our food. This is a prayer of contrition, a prayer of humbling ourselves before the Lord when we are in a state of sin. And we pray. We seek His face. We don't seek Him to give me, give me, give me. We seek Him for fellowship with Him. And the Scripture goes on to say that what will God do? Forgive their sin. We cannot underestimate the importance of that. And He will heal their land. If you and I love America, we will understand it's our responsibility to do exactly what the Bible says about any number of things. And you are to adopt a biblical worldview that is simply to say you are to look at life through the lens of Scripture. 
There's not anything in your life that is left unaddressed in the Bible about everyday living. Read it. Just take the book of Proverbs. Read it. And apply your life to that. And God will heal this land. We want Him to heal this land. Well, then we need to be before the Lord. Trusting the Lord. Asking the Lord to change us so that we could be change agents in the world. There are a few final things I would say. It's somewhat redundant, but it won't take but a couple of minutes and we'll be done. Here's some actions to be taken. First of all, in your personal life, acknowledge God's sovereignty. And that means make sure that Jesus Christ is not a sometime Lord of your life. He is your Lord. Have you really surrendered to the Lord? Have you had that moment where in brokenness you saw your absolute need for the Lord and you've yielded your life to Him? That's the beginning point. Everything else falls into place if you do that. Then secondly, accept God's discipline. Accept it as an act of love on God's part. Don't turn away from God. You misunderstand God. He did not spare His own Son. He sent His own Son to die in your place. Your salvation depended on God sending His sinless Son to die for you. And so did mine. Thirdly, adhere to God's command to repent. When God says repent, repent. When the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience and says that's wrong, you thought a wrong thought, you said something wrong, you did something wrong, maybe all three, say, Lord, please forgive me. Take control of me again. I'm yours. I'm not my own. And lastly, adopt a biblical worldview and a biblical lifestyle. Here's why this is so important. You will recall, perhaps, that the first meeting Jesus had with all the apostles, He began... With Moses, that would be the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He began there. Then he went to all the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And then he kept it off by going to the Psalms. And in every place in all of those books, he showed how those writers were pointing to him. We know the New Testament's full of Jesus. It's all about him, isn't it? But what we need to understand is Jesus is the subject of your Bible. And you will never be able to be a change agent in this world unless you adopt a biblical worldview centered on Christ. He's the center of the Bible. He's to be the center of our lives. And when He's the center of our lives, we will have the power to live life as God intended it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You today. We are in need as your people to live the Christian life as you intended it. To not be ashamed of you or your words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Lord, to be willing to die if necessary in order to represent you properly because we know that unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. And by such fruit you are glorified. Help us to love you enough to die to ourselves in this life so that we might have fruit forever in the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.